Amen. Last night I was watching the Seattle game uh, as they're playing the Saints. And a couple of football players got in a, a, a tussle, you know, as they often do. And one of these guys, a linebacker, 6'4", 6'5", he's just angry. And this referee, who must have been 5'10", he pulls him off the other player and he gets in his face and he's pointing at him and he's blessing him out. And this big 6'4 linebacker is looking at this little man, this little referee who dresses like he's an employee at the Foot Locker. And he is, and he is bowing to this man. He is submitting to this man. He's like a, a little child being scolded by his father. And I was thinking about that and I said to myself, sports could not flourish without the authority of the referees on the field. And you know, I, uh, I am a big baseball fan, as many of you know. And um, history tells us at the, end, at the turn of the 20th century, there was an authority crisis in baseball. Uh, in part because Major League front office was not backing up the referees on the field. And so there was, there was a, a real crisis of authority in baseball. And so baseball at the turn of the 20th century looked more like professional wrestling today than anything else. You would have baseball players who would cold cock, I mean, get in fist fights with umpires. Uh, you had these cantankerous managers who would threaten to kill umpires. And that was the, the way things were at the turn of the 20th century. Until one man entered the picture. Perhaps the most important umpire in the history of Major League Baseball, Bill Clem. Bill Clem uh, was the man who really began to, to establish the authority of the umpire in baseball. Um, this is illustrated uh, in this, uh, I guess you could say, this angry, hostile conversation he had with John McGraw, who was considered the, the most difficult manager to deal with of the day. John McGraw, after one call, said to Bill Clem, I can have your job removed um, for, for this call that you just made. And Clem replied, if it's true that you can have my job because you don't like my call, then I don't want this job. Well, McGraw did not get Clem's job. And Clem went on to become this trend-setting umpire from 1905 to 1941. It was Bill Clem who created the hand signals for strikes and balls. And so when you have an umpire who calls a strike, uh, that was Bill Clem's creation. Uh, it was Bill Clem who, who created the universal hand signs for, for outs and safe calls and, and fair balls and foul balls. He was the first umpire to get down in a crouch behind the catcher, looking over the catcher's shoulder. He was the first umpire to wear a chest protector behind the plate. This man was a trailblazer of umpires. But the most important thing about him was he was the one who established the authority of the umpire on the field. In fact, there's a very famous account where that I think illustrates this. Uh, a, a hitter looked at him and said, was that fair or foul? And Clem looked at this hitter and said, it ain't nothing until I call it. 
Such was the authority of Bill Clem. Of course, today, Major League Baseball umpires have the authority. And in large measure, because of Bill Clem. And so, you have managers and baseball players alike who submit to the authority of the umpire. Now, they may not love the umpire, nor do they even have to love the umpire to submit to his call, but they submit to his authority. Well, in God's economy, uh, when God expresses his authority, and we submit to his authority... It's not because he's some kind of heavy-handed, tyrannical kind of despot. It's not because he wears a uniform and we must submit to him. It's because we want to submit to him. When the authority of God, through the Son of God, comes to bear on a sinner's life, a sinner's heart, we bow to his authority, we recognize his authority, because we have a new love for him. You see, when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes to bear on a situation, a broken situation, He transforms it. And one of the evidences that we have been transformed is that we submit to His authority. And we submit to it gladly. There were a couple of calls yesterday in the basketball game where the referee, Rocky Metz, called... um, He actually called a foul on one of my players, which happened to be his daughter. And not only that, his daughter just had her 15th birthday the day before. And he called two fouls on her that I did not like. But I submitted it to him, not because I love him, because I had to. When the authority of God comes to bear on a situation, we do submit. But we submit not because he is some kind of dictator in the sky. It's because our hearts have been gladly warmed. Our hearts have been transformed by his covenantal presence, by his sovereignty, indeed by his authority. We see that today. But we also see that when the authority of God through his son comes to bear, not everyone submits. There will be those who see the authority of Christ as a threat. A threat to their kingdom. A threat to their sinful lives. We see that today. And the first thing we see in our text today is Jesus' authority communicated, as we read earlier in this text. Notice with me in verse 47. It says, He was teaching daily in the temple. Well, It appears that when he went into the temple to cleanse it, uh, he was effective in what he did. He has reclaimed the temple for its proper use. Now, why do I say that? Well, as we'll see in chapter 20, he's done something because the leaders, the Sanhedrin, recognize an authority about Jesus. They're asking him about his authority because something has gone down in the temple. And so they recognize an authority that is alien, that is unique, that is something they've never seen or experienced before. But secondly, notice, he's teaching the people. He's teaching daily in the temple. Indeed, that's why Jerome, the great church theologian, uh, deemed the temple cleansing 
of Jesus to be his greatest of his miracles. Now the Jews of that day uh, knew that when the Messiah would come. Now they were waiting for a Messiah. That was their hope. They're still waiting for him. Those who have not recognized Jesus as Lord. They're still waiting for the Messiah. But they were waiting for Messiah in that day. And they knew that when the Messiah would come, and this Messiah would come from the family of David, who was from the family of Judah, who was from the family of Abraham. Okay? They knew that when this Messiah would come, he would come to his temple. And that's why you have Simeon and Anna in the temple waiting for the consolation of Israel. They knew that when he came, he would come to his temple. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 tells us, Behold, I and my messenger, uh, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So not only did they know the Messiah would come, that he would have a forerunner, he would have a messenger who would precede him. And the Lord, that is Yahweh, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Now that's interesting. Because Malachi is speaking about a king. He's speaking about a human king. He's speaking about a king from the line of David. And yet here, his name is Yahweh. Tell me, these prophets knew. They knew that the king of David, the son of David, would be greater than a man. He would be a man, but he would be greater than a man. He would be indeed Yahweh, Lord of very Lord. And so they knew that when he came, he would come to his temple. And so without coincidence, the temple uh, was a very important aspect of Jesus' mission in his ministry. It had been in the temple that Gabriel had announced to, his, to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, that the forerunner, the messenger, would be born. Okay? It was in the temple that Simeon took Jesus in his arms and worshipped the Lord because he knew in his arms he held the consolation of Israel. It was in the temple that Jesus first voiced his messianic consciousness. Remember when his parents lost him and they had to go back to the temple? And he said... Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And it was in the temple, at the very peak of the temple, that the devil tempted him to prematurely reveal his Messiahship. And so this, the fact that he's at the temple is not surprising to us. The Messiah would come to his temple. And now after entering this temple and cleansing it, the scripture says he's teaching there. Now, this connection between this verse and the verse we saw last week does not need to be lost. Last week, he described the temple as the house of prayer. Now, I know from having been 45 years in the Southern Baptist Church that you can describe the Southern Baptist Church in a lot of ways. But rarely can you rightly describe it as a house of prayer. We do a lot of activity, but not a lot of praying. It's just interesting that of all the ways you can describe the temple here, which points to us, the temple of God, it's a house of prayer. By the way, we have prayer on Monday nights at 6 o'clock. Um, but here, he's not praying. 
He's teaching. Which means we can't divorce the Word of God and prayer. I know people who are prayer warriors, but they're not people of the book. And so if you're not a person of the book, and you're a prayer warrior, your prayers are probably going to be just expressing some form of heresy. Alright? And then I know people who are people of the book. But they rarely pray. So we need to make sure we don't divorce teaching the Word of God and prayer. In fact, from here all the way to the end of chapter 21, I think verse 37, it's very clear the temple is going to be Jesus' pulpit. He's going to be teaching. And this is very important because He's just days out from the, from the cross. And days out from the cross, what is He spending His time doing? Teaching the Word of God. Now notice it says He was teaching daily. It doesn't tell us what He was teaching. So what do you think He was teaching? Well, again, we're not left to speculate. Because if you look in chapter 20, verse 1, which we'll come to in a moment, notice it says... He was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. That's what he was teaching. He was teaching the gospel. The most assumed thing in the 21st century church. The gospel. He's days out from the cross. He's teaching the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news. What is the news? It's not advice. It's news. Here is the news. God is making all things new through His Messiah, through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's kind of a macro picture of the gospel. God is making all things new. What things? Everything. In heaven and on earth. He is fixing the broken things. He is making the sad things come untrue. He is redeeming the enslaved. That's what He's doing. That's the gospel. Now, there are two stages of this gospel mission. One day, God is going to make a new heaven, a new earth. The curse is going to be removed from this curse-fallen cosmos, okay? But there's a first stage to this new creation project. He is making a people new. He is saving a people who will serve as His priest kings in the new heavens and the new earth. The temple, if you will. He's making a temple. And we, He will have priest kings in that temple serving Him as He did in Genesis 1 and 2. As He did in the tabernacle. As He did in the temple. So, how does He do that? Here's how He does it. He sends the Messiah to save. He sends the Messiah as a substitute as a representative, to do what you and I were called to do, but went AWOL on our mission. He comes as the, as the worshiper. He comes as the covenant keeper. He comes as the one who loves God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. So that you and I, as believers, could be deemed as those who love God. And then He goes to the cross and He takes the wrath for our sin, for our rebellion, for our perversity. 
And He's raised from the grave. That's what He's teaching. This is what's going to happen to me in just a few days. I'm going to be crucified on a cross so that I could save a people who will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. That's the gospel that He was preaching. But tragically, there were those who refused to hear that word that He was teaching. Notice in verse 47, the second part, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men, probably the elders, which constitutes the Sanhedrin, the most religious people, the most powerful people in the Jewish nation. They were seeking to destroy Him. Wow. Seeking to destroy Him. Now that's not a surprise. Remember when Simeon held baby Jesus in his hands? Remember those words that he gave to Mary? Here's what he shared with Mary in chapter 2. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. It's very sobering words. In other words, Simeon knew from his study of the Old Testament that the Messiah he was holding in his hands was going to come. And this one who came, who was in his arms, was appointed for the rising of many, the salvation of many, but also for the fall of many. Indeed, he was a sign that is opposed. And here we have those who were opposed to Jesus, the religious leaders of the day. But there were many who were melted by his words, who were melted by his works and his person. Notice in verse 48. But they did not find anything they could do. They were seeking to destroy Him, which incidentally is the first time that we see um, explicitly in Luke this plot to kill Jesus. They were looking to do that, but they could not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on His words. Why were they hanging on His words? It's beautiful language. Well, we see the answer to that as far back as chapter 4, verse 32, where it says they were astonished at His teaching, for His Word possessed authority. They were hanging on His words because His words possessed authority. You see, when Jesus' Lordship comes to bear in a church in a family, or even at the individual level, one of the first signs is that you're drawn to His Word. You are compelled by His Word. You have a new interest in His Word. You're drawn to the Word of Christ. You recognize the authority of the Word of Christ and are compelled by it. Not this stuff you hear in the country songs about the good book 
Or you see in the Westerns, the good book. Mama gave you the good book. When you were a young boy, you have a sentimental attachment to the good book. No. It's as Philippians 2.16 says, holding fast to the word of life. That's how you know the authority of Christ, the Lordship of Christ has come to bear on your broken, sin-stained situation. You now have a new love for the Word of Christ. It's compelling to you. It doesn't bore you. I mean, these people were hanging on His words. And that's the question I would submit to you this morning. Is that where you are? Is that where you are? Do, do you find the Word of Christ to be the Word of life for you? Now, I think there are Christians that are not spiritually healthy. I really believe that. And so they don't hunger for the Word as they should. None of us hunger as we should. We're all growing, okay? We're all growing in grace. Preferably, we will, each one of us as believers will, will long for the Word more this time next year than, than this year. And there are Christians because they haven't been fed nutrients. You know, it's kind of like that condition when your body is hungry, but you don't even realize you're hungry. So there are Christians who do not hunger for it as they should. But I'm talking about people who never open up the book. And when they do, it's out of some kind of obligation because they're at a church service and the Sunday school teacher told them to open up the book. If that's where you are, it is a very dangerous place to be. Because when the Lordship of Christ comes to bear on your heart, you are going to have a new love for His Word. So if that's not where you are this morning, ask God to open up your heart to the glory of His Word. Because when Jesus is at work, the Bibles are opened. And yet when Jesus is at work, you can also assume spiritual warfare. As I said, this is Luke's first mention of uh, this account, this plan to have Jesus put to death. But I love this. There was nothing they could do. <laughs> there was nothing they could do about it because the light... Is pushing back the darkness, at least for this time, until his hour uh, comes to die. And that's what Jesus' authority does when it erupts among a people. The light pushes back, it dispels the darkness. It does that in churches, it does that in homes. In fact, this authority is what brings up the next conversation. We saw Jesus' authority expressed, but now we're going to see it questioned. In verses 1 to 8 of chapter 20. Look with me in verse 1. This is, remember, the chapter divisions were added later. Luke didn't have these chapter divisions. They were added around the 16th century. Okay? Just to benefit us, the reader. And that's why you'll see like in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament. He doesn't quote chapter and verse because they didn't have them. He'll say, somewhere it says... <laughs> somewhere it says. Well, we don't have to say somewhere it says because we have chapter and verse. But this chapter division, I think, is unfortunate because it's continuing the thought at the end of chapter 19. 
It says, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Remember, on Sunday, this is probably Tuesday, some believe Wednesday, but just two days prior to this, Jesus came riding in on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it said, prophesied that the king would ride in on a donkey. And what do the people do? They're throwing their cloaks in the street and they're singing, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they're worshiping King Jesus. And then to top it off, he goes into the temple. He cleanses it out. And he's put up a pulpit there. And he's teaching the gospel. And this was blasphemy to these spiritual leaders. He's preaching the gospel which destroys self-righteousness. Why does the gospel, by the way, destroy self-righteousness? Here's the reason. Because the gospel centers on the cross. And the cross is the event in history that communicates that all of us, every single one of us, even the most polished among us, deserves judgment. How can you be self-righteous when you understand that? Each one of us deserves to be judged as much as Hitler deserved to be judged. If you don't believe that, you have too low a view of sin. The cross destroys self-righteousness. And the self-righteous leaders here are, are now in an angry mood. He mentions three groups, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. This is the Sanhedrin, the most powerful unit in the Jewish nation. They were kind of a buffer between Rome and the Jewish nation. They had almost complete uh, religious freedom and they had some political freedom with some restrictions. They were a powerful people. And to them it was clear this man was not operating through the right authority. Their authority was the chief priest. And so they... They asked him this question. Notice in verse 2. They came up to him and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. What things? Well, cleansed out the temple. Teaching the word of God, the gospel, with authority. Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? Now the leaders here were wrong about most things. If your foundation is off, it doesn't matter how beautiful your house is, okay? And their foundation was completely off. It wasn't founded on grace and mercy. It was founded on works righteousness, okay? So they're wrong about most things, but they're right about one thing. Authority is the fundamental question of life. Who has the right to govern that's the most important question you could ever ask. Who has the right to govern? And this authority is essentially the question that everyone has about Jesus. What gives him the right to tell me how to handle my sex life? How to handle my money? 
gives him the right to have authority over my marriage, over how I raise my children? What gives him the right, what gives him the authority to tell me how to spend my time? Okay? Where to go, what to do, how to use my resources and my talents, my life. What gives him the right? You see, the problem the Sanhedrin faced was that Jesus' authority challenged their authority. That, that's the issue at stake. The issue that they are facing is also the issue that everyone faces. Jesus' authority confronts my authority. His right to govern confronts my right to govern my life. Maybe it begins with a believer coming to you and telling you that you're a sinner. And that irks you. There, there's nothing that irks you more than to hear that you're a sinner. All right? And that believer tells you that unless you bow the knee to King Jesus, you're going to go to hell. And not only is it a, an eternal hell, it's going to be a conscious suffering. And you know you've never cheated on your wife or your taxes. You've never killed anyone. And that just sets you off, alright? And then, on a beautiful January Sunday, you decide to come to a church, sweet little Fisherville, and you've got a preacher up there who, who's calling you a sinner, and now you're really ticked, okay? You just can't get away from this. But you try to put it out of your mind. But then you have a neighbor who continues to confront you about the claims of Christ. You can't get away from it. You begin to realize, if He takes over my life, there's going to be some significant changes that have to take place. And you don't like that. That's the issue here. And so you raise all sorts of intellectual questions. Man, you get really philosophical. You raise all the intellectual questions so that you don't have to face the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the issue, alright? But He won't go away. He just won't go away. Eventually, you have to be honest with yourself and you have to deal with the question that the Sanhedrin is asking. By what authority does Jesus say and do these things? Indeed, that's the most important question you could ever ask yourself. And the answer to that question is this. If Jesus' authority is from God, you must give Him your life. If it's not from God, why are you here? Go eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow you die. There is no hope. And teach your children that, by the way, as well. That's the issue. And they asked Jesus this open-ended question. And I love Jesus' response. Jesus is so wise... The reason he's so wise is because he's the one in whom all the wisdom literature points to. He is the wisdom of God. So he responds back with a question to them. Look back and look in verse 3. 
And they asked him about this authority. He answered them. I also will ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? He boils it down. I mean, there's only one of two choices. It's either from God, from heaven, which is a Jewish way of saying from God, or it's from man. There's no middle ground here. It's black and white. Was the baptism of John, and the baptism of John represented John's entire earthly ministry, okay? It's kind of shorthand for his entire ministry. Was John the Baptist baptism from God? Or it was some kind of uh, man-made construction? That's the question he asked them. Now, at face value, at first glance, it seems that Jesus' response to the Sanhedrin here is irrelevant. It almost seems uh, evasive. What does John the Baptist and his baptism have to do with their question that they're asking Jesus? It really does seem that way. It seems almost a, a, a diversionary tactic, almost kind of like a, a coon, okay? A coon that, that, that jumps into a stream because it's trying to, to avoid Jack May's coon dogs who are, who are uh, on its tail, all right? Y'all didn't know Jack May was on the cover of Coon Hunting Magazine, but that's a whole different issue. That almost, that almost appears to be the way he's dealing with this. He's almost diverting it. But ironically, Jesus' counter question has everything to do with their question. Alright? Because if they answer this question, he asked them honestly and truthfully, then they have the answer to their question. You see, when Jesus was baptized, he was baptized by John. Now, Jesus, as the Son of God, He is the eternal Son of God. He, let me use a fancy term here, ontologically, He has all authority. He has the eternal authority of God in His being and essence. But now, as the God-man, this authority is being unleashed in history. And so, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. And a voice that could be heard came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's the well-pleasing Son. By the way, isn't that freeing? You don't have to be well-pleasing. That's too much pressure to wear. You don't have to be well-pleasing to God. All you have to do is kiss the Son. And you will be deemed the well-pleasing Son and Daughter of God. Now out of that will flow glad obedience. Out of that will flow holiness. But it's not your obedience that earns that description. It's the obedience of the Son. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so at the baptism of John the Baptist, when he baptized Jesus, Jesus is inaugurated with this authority. The authority of the God-man. So Jesus is not evading his question. 
Jesus is not evading the question at all. If they will answer his question honestly, they will have their answer. If John the Baptist was a true prophet, and he pointed to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, case closed. That's the question. And keep in mind, just a, if you, just a trivia point here. Besides Jesus and his mission, his ministry, his person, John the Baptist is the only New Testament ministry prophesied in the Old Testament. Do you know that? He is the only one who's prophesied in the Old Testament besides the Messiah. We saw that in Malachi 3, didn't we? He's the forerunner. He's the one like Elijah who will come. And so he had been prophesied. And so John the Baptist wasn't some secondary figure who just came along the scene and wanted to, to be a part of Jesus' mission. He's the forerunner. The Jews were expecting a forerunner. And so they shouldn't have been surprised here. This should have left the unbelieving Jews without excuse. They couldn't say that they were taken by surprise. Because both the forerunner and the Messiah had been prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. And such logic was not lost on these guys. Notice in verses 5 to 7. And they discussed it with one another, saying... If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? Now, that kind of tells you something right there. Their first response is, if we say from heaven, what does that tell you? They kind of get the idea that John the Baptist's ministry was from heaven. Alright? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. Doesn't that sound like a, a politician? They're not concerned about conviction. What's going to get them elected? And keep them elected. For they are convinced he's, that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. So if they attribute divine origin to John the Baptist's ministry, they're self-condemned. Because they've rejected John the Baptist's ministry. As reflected by the fact that he was beheaded. Alright? But if they say that John the Baptist's ministry didn't come from heaven, they're going to be flogged. There's going to be a mob after them. Jesus put them in a precarious situation. And so they don't answer him. And if we don't respond in faith to what God's already revealed to us, He's not beholden to reveal anything else to us. Notice how this ends. Verse 8. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He knew they weren't being honest. If you're not going to be honest with what I've revealed to you, I'm not going to reveal anything else to you. I'm not beholden to do that. And that's a very fearful place to be when Jesus doesn't answer us anymore. But here's the question as we close today. Why didn't they accept Jesus as Messiah and Lord? Why didn't they accept His forerunner, John the Baptist? Not enough evidence? Is that it? That's what you hear today. No, by this time, 
Jesus had raised at least three people from the grave. Jairus' daughter, the widow at Nain's son, and Lazarus. He's healed. He's, he's healed the crippled, the lame. He's made the blind to see, the, the deaf to hear. He has stilled hurricanes by a word spoken. He has utterly transformed tax collectors and prostitutes from the inside out. He has cleansed the temple. Some 200,000 animals being sold and bought in the temple. He's cleansed it out and he is speaking the word with authority so that people are astonished at what he's saying. Is there a lack of evidence? No, the problem was not evidence. It was because of the hardness of their hearts. In fact, Ephesians 4.18 describes that condition that all of us have until we're converted, regenerated by the Spirit. They are darkened in their understanding. Who's they? You and I, these leaders. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance due to the hardening of their hearts. Do you get that? They're darkened in their understanding. They, they just have no understanding of the things of God. And they have no desire for the things of God. And why do they have that? Because they're ignorant. But it's not a, a, an ignorance of IQ. It's an ignorance due to a hardened heart. They love their sin too much. They love their idols too much. And therefore, they will not submit to the one who's going to topple over their idols. That was the issue. It was not evidence. And if you find yourself this morning, and I, I plead here with this. Uh, this is not, please don't hear me say that I'm angry or this is, this is my heart's cry. If you see yourself this morning as indifferent or bored or even obstinate and resistant to the word of Christ, that's a dangerous, eternally dangerous place to be. Beg God to open up your heart. To soften, to melt your heart. So that you can behold Christ in His glory. For who He is is Lord. Keep in mind, most people are not consciously in rebellion to God. You see people talking about the man upstairs. I'm, me and the man upstairs are on good terms. Uh, that's generally the way people think. But if you are not consciously and willingly submissive to the Lordship of His Son and His authority over every aspect of your life, you're in rebellion to God. You're in the same ground as these spiritual hypocrites. Because when Jesus enters your life... He comes in as absolute Lord. doesn't mean you're sinless. No. You sin this morning, you're going to sin this afternoon and tonight and for the rest of your life. That's not the issue. But there's this growing awareness that He has authority over everything. From what I view on the computer screen, to what I watch in the movie, to the things I listen to on the radio, to the way I treat my spouse, the way I raise my children. What I do with my resources. There's this growing awareness that Jesus' authority is to come to bear over every aspect of my life. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's why these people were so opposed. 
You see, when Jesus comes in as Lord, He comes in and He confronts our sin and He says, I'm the Lord of this temple. And I am going to cleanse this temple. Is there a temple cleansing going on in your life? You see, that temple cleansing is grounded in this. The one who went into the temple with whips to cleanse it in just a few days is going to be whipped. The one in whom the temple points, Jesus, is going to be whipped whipped so that we could become His temple. So that we could be made clean. And the evidence that we have experienced that saving grace is that now there's a cleansing, there's a, a house cleaning taking place in our lives as His authority comes to bear over every aspect of my life. It's a life of repentance. Is that where you are today? If you're not, you may be in league with this Sanhedrin group that was too righteous for Jesus. Come to Christ. Bow the knee. 